Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Enjoy this replay of our February 2019th live show with Chef Brittany Anderson. The Virginian behind Brenner Pass and Metzger Bar and Butchery is on this season of Top Chef. How she went from wings and flair at Hooters to national culinary stardom. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. Learn more at SalomonLudwin.com. Full disclosure, live from Scott's Edition, RVA. I am here with Chef Brittany Anderson. She is not just the Iron Chef contender that you remember. What was it, Battle Blue Cheese? Blue Cheese. But the James Beard-nominated talent behind Brenner Pass and Metzger Bar and Butchery. She's nationally in demand. You've seen her on the Food Network. She's been profiled everywhere. Tonight, she is ours. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing it. Look, I read about you in GQ. You've been on TV and regional publications, everybody talked, I mean, you were called the schnitzel queen of Metzger Bar and Butchery, which was your first name out of it. But I would like you to rewind us and our audience back to the year 2002. Where were you working? 2002, what a weird year. Um, I'm from Richmond and uh, I grew up here in the West End and um, went to college here, went to VCU and uh, I graduated high school in 2000, and I'd been working in restaurants for a while, um, mainly in front of house. And in 2002, I was, goodness, I think I had been at, well, let's be real. I worked at Hooters <laughs> in 2002. Um, I was a Hooters girl. I was an English major in college, and I thought that I would write the big feminist expose about Hooters while wearing the uniform, and um, didn't happen. Uh, but I think it really like changed my perspective on women in restaurants, and um, kind of started me off the path I am today. So. Okay, okay, time out. So you, you wanted to be embedded and investigative and go into this, or did you need <laughs> the money, and did you have to tell your dad or mom that you were going to go and work at Hooters? Um, I think it was a combination. I think I made, I was like, oh, you guys would hire me? Okay, it was like, cool. But um, I, I think that it was a combination of both. My dad became a regular, which is <laughs> crazy. Um, and <laughs> still asked me, what about your friends from Hooters? What happened to them? Um, but uh, it was definitely fun, it was fun. So let me understand this. How do you even prepare for an interview? Do you go in and say, listen, I'm going to criticize them on? You're not using the correct amount of shortening as an emulsifier. Or I think that you can up your game maybe if we bring duck fat into it. No, it's not about that. Uh, are they straightforward about that at the at very Hooters? outset with you? Oh, I wasn't a cook. <laughs> um, I was a waitress. And no, they just take a photo of you and make you spin around three times. And then they, they're like, OK, you, you can come. <laughs> <laughs> Which is terrible. I don't, I, I actually think Hooters is a terrible establishment and I don't think you should work there. Uh, <laughs> so break that out for us though. I mean, you wanted, you, you thought, you know, you told me parenthetically that you thought in your other life you would be an investigative journalist or a politician that maybe you could dish on this. You are dishing on it now 17 years later. Well, after working at Hooters, I think my career in politics was out the window. So, <laughs> but I, um, yeah, you know, I, it's interesting. I wanted to write and now I write menus, but, um, and I still think that there's a lot to be said from writing. I'm glad I went to school for it. Um, I, and I'm glad, you know, I had the experiences I did. Not only did I work at Hooters, I also worked at Buffalo Wild Wings. I worked at uh, TGI Fridays. Uh, was did really, you wear flair? I was so into the flair. Like, that's why I wanted the job, for the outfits. Like, it was all about, like, how many buttons I could have. And, but they don't do that anymore, so... So I need to stay on Hooters because we can't <laughs> resist the conceit here. You can imagine it when we file it up to NPR. You know, Chef Brittany from Hooters to Hote. 
right? <laughs> uh, I want to know what it was. So they said, listen, you're going to wear this. You're going to come in dressed in the interview like this. Did you say, no, I'm not? I, walk me through it. Because this is 2002. It's not even 1980 or I'm thinking 1990s vintage Hooters. Oh, it's... It's not even semi-enlightened Hooters. I think it's still probably terrible. Um, you actually sign all your rights away into arbitration. So you can't sue for any sexual harassment as a woman who works at Hooters. You are saying that it's okay to be sexually harassed if you work there. Um, you, you know, and I don't know if you know, in a chain restaurant, when you go to apply for a, a position, you just fill out some paper and then they just, you know, they, there's no experience necessary. They tell you what to do. Um, but no, I, I don't think that Hooters has in, become enlightened. There, we just did a piece in, um, GQ. in GQ about this, right? And, and they interviewed a lot of different uh, women who'd worked at Hooters and moved on to different things. And I do think it's a sexual harassment factory. So I, it's a bad place. <laughs> so let me quote your interview in, in GQ last year. Uh, you said, it's an entire job based on sexual harassment. You are paid to be sexually harassed and objectified. Every note at Hooters is aware. I was in college and had dreams of becoming a writer, so I convinced myself that working at Hooters would provide me with lots of cool stories to write about and a little extra cash to blow at crappy bars. Your interview consisted of filling out an application and then modeling a uniform, a scoop neck tank top, orange booty shorts, and thick tan tights to keep your legs shapely and smooth while the manager took Polaroids. Yeah. We are officially in the Me Too era right now, but I'm struck. I remember what I was doing in 2002. I remember what I was, and I, I think back, I mean, I guess this still happens. Totally still happens, which is why it's very important to me. I, I employ a lot of women, and especially women cooks. I think it's important to tell the Hooters story because I think a lot of people think that women who work at Hooters aren't going to go on to do a lot of other interesting things and might not be that intelligent or might not, you know, have dreams. But, um, you know, I went on to do a lot of things, and I feel like it's good to know that women can, you know, be different people. We can be girls who work at Hooters. We can be chefs. We can be business leaders. There's just so many things we can do. And, and I don't think we should judge people based on those things. But yeah, um, Hooters is definitely not a place that I would want my daughter to go work. Did that experience at Hooters, however much you want to repress it, do you think going back to that gave you your first kind of pang of wanting to work in the kitchen and create dishes? Or did that come afterwards? Oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> we... Uh, the food at Hooters is not the draw. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> when um, I left Hooters, I uh, had, you know, I, came, I come from a family that loves to eat and loves food. And um, I left Hooters and ended up working at those other places I mentioned, but also at um, a restaurant called Patina in the West End in uh, 2002 at the end of the year. And Brian Mumford was the chef there and I was a bartender. And I begged him to let me cook. I thought his dishes were creative and interesting. And I mean, this is still before Richmond had its like big dining kind of revolution and we got a lot of new things. But Brian was doing it like cool food, very fusion-y food for 2002. And um, I begged him to let me cook there. He, I, so how did you get a foot in the door as a server? I was a bartender, yeah. My best friend, I took her job. She moved uh, out of town. And, and you she, took bartending lessons and decided I'm going to parlay that? Oh, no. That, I or? mean, I'd been working bartending in other places, clubs, Tiki Bobs, all the, all the garbage places when you're, you know, 19, 18 to 22 is kind of that where I was. So they give you a small chance at Patina's, not the big shot. But tell me how that worked. Tell me what your day was like. I mean, you've, you've heard of other people that, you know, editorial assistant at CNN who becomes the anchor woman or the, the people that moved up the job. How did you get that foot in the door after the bartending position where you weren't just you looked at as a fungible person? If she doesn't work out, there are 10 bartenders behind her. How did you make it more permanent? Well, you know, I, I work very hard. I, uh, I've always loved being involved in restaurants and taking care of people and the hospitality and fun of it. Um, and Brian Mumford was tough, very tough. Randy Detzer, who is another chef here in Richmond, he was at Juleps for years. Uh, he was the sous chef there. So a lot of people kind of came up under him. Um, and it was a tough day. You know, we one of the first bars in Richmond to juice all their own juices and to be, you know, kind of trying to creatively make cocktails at the time. And so I was working really hard at that. I was, um, I was watching the kitchen, and I had ideas. And I, uh, I asked if I could come back and work for free. So on my days off, I would come in and work a station for free 
um, to learn. And then finally, I remember this day, I was leaving. I, you know, I think they let me make pastry and salads. Like, I wasn't allowed to do a lot. But I was leaving, and I walked out the door, and Brian goes, hey, that pie looked great. <laughs> and he was like, you want to work an actual shift? I'll pay you. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I was so happy. And, um, I, and so I did, and then I stopped bartending there and was uh, cooking there full time for a few months until I realized I should go to culinary school. How did you hone this craft at home? Were you having uh, little pop-up dinners with friends at home? Like, come over, let me try this in the kitchen. You know, pop-ups weren't a thing in 2002. I mean, you know, (laughs) at at, at Casa Britney, at your own house. I love to cook. My boyfriend at the time had gotten me some cooking classes at Williams Sonoma, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, I remember I took a pad thai class. I don't make pad thai, but, uh, and I think, you know, we had done a couple things like that together. And I worked in restaurants, so, you know, I was into wine, I was into cocktails, I was trying to, I was selling food, and we had to learn a lot about food with Brian. And I think that, you know, at least my servers and his servers are very knowledgeable about food and know a lot and could probably, could probably make a nice meal at home just from being in restaurants and learning and getting to be around that culture. So mostly that. Um, I was really into magazines. I read all the food magazines. I don't really do that anymore. But back then, I would just, I would devour them. So how did you wing it and bake this pie that got the ardor of the owner of the place? I mean, Did I you think... practice that at home? No, walk, walk me through it, really. We have a lot of time. No, no. Um, you know, the older I get, the more I've been doing this, I tend to think that there are some, there are people who have a little bit of a natural gift for it, which is a weird thing to say. I, I just have only started to think this, that like there's something that, um, it's artistic. I think you have to kind of be a visual person. You have to be able to, you know, be interested in visual art as well as cooking food, because I think it's a combination of those things. So at the time, I mean, I think it was plating. That's it. I didn't make the pie. He made the pie. I just put it on a plate. So I think he liked the way it looked. So, you know, attention to detail and things like that. But just repetition during service. What did you do that night when you went home? It's like, gee, thank you, mister. You're going <laughs> to give me a shot at this. Did, what kind of visions danced through your head? Well, How, you know, were you punch drunk when you went home thinking about this? Really, I want, this is a full x-ray. I want yeah. you to walk everybody through. I probably did a shot of Jaeger. <laughs> like in 2002, that's what I was into. Um, I probably, you know, I was, he, Brian Mumford, I don't actually think he lives in Richmond anymore, but he was a, a huge force in my life at the time. I, just can I give you a story about please, like how please. you can feel how serious this guy's like approval was? I um, when I was a bartender there, this is when you could smoke in restaurants, and he would smoke. He'd get done in the kitchen, he'd come and sit at the bar, and I would be cleaning the bar, and um, he would just sit there and smoke and drink Budweisers and watch. And I mopped the whole floor. It was like 45 minutes, and then he like came up to me at the end. He goes, "You know, you didn't do it right." And I was like, "I've been there for months. You know, it's the way I always mop the floor." And uh, I was like, oh, okay, chef, how should I do it? And he was like, like this. So he shows me. So I go and I do it all over again. I mop the whole floor again. This is like at 2 in the morning. And, um, and then when I'm done, you know, I was really scared and nervous that I did it. Did I do it right? And he, uh, I tripped. I tripped with the mop bucket. And the, I fell on the ground and the whole mop bucket fell over and dumped all over me. It was like a divot in the floor. And so I'm in a puddle, and I just want to cry. And, um, and I think I did cry. <laughs> and he just laughed, and he put his cigarette out in the, in the puddle. And, what a mensch. And left. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, my God. So when he was like, pastry looks great, I was like, ah. It was like the best day of my life because it was very tough, very, very tough chef. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Brindy Anderson. She is James Beard-nominated chef and owner of Brenner Pass, Chairlift, and Metzger Bar and Butchery. Uh, you grew up in Richmond but trained in New York at French Culinary Institute, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, and Northern Spy Food Company before coming back to the RVA. So I want you to take us into the next chapter. You built enough of a head of steam at Patina to decide to apply to culinary school? How do you do that? Do you take, like, the ACTs? <laughs> How does it work? There's no rules about becoming a cook or, you know, you can go to culinary school or you don't have to. You can just work in a kitchen for a long time. Um, Some people, like I said, are naturally kind of gifted and can jump ahead. Some people need, you know, the instruction. I was the only woman in the kitchen at Patina and I, uh, 
I worked with all these guys and I kind of felt like, I was like, I think I could do a better job. <laughs> That's kind of a, a, a jerk thing to say, but I felt like I knew there was more. I knew there was more we could do. And I didn't really know where I was going to learn it in Richmond at the time. There was no other, you know, no place maybe at the time La Mer, the hotel. But again, being a woman, I didn't know one other female cook at the time in Richmond. Um, I didn't have anyone to talk to. There was no female chef restaurant owners in Richmond, not one. Um, and so I, I just didn't really know how to get involved. So I was like, well, I guess I'll go to culinary school. Um, so we went to, I toured a couple and we went to the French Culinary Institute in Manhattan. And, you know, I, Alain Ducasse had lunch with my mother. They are very good about like getting that, the bill of how much it costs, it's expensive, to seem like nothing because they really wine and dine you. And um, the, the mentors there are incredible. Where I left Richmond, I didn't have any mentors and I went to culinary school and Jacques Pepin is one of my teachers. So it's just a, a whole nother ball game. And I knew that the networking opportunities that I would have from that school would, would get me far. So um, my boyfriend and I, we packed up and moved to New York. Where did you first live in New York? I lived in the same place the entire time I lived in New York. Uh, you find a good apartment there, you stick with it. And uh, we were in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, on uh, Lincoln uh, Avenue stop. Did you think you'd ever be coming back to Richmond? Not at the time I left. At the time I left, I thought I would, I mean, I wanted to open a restaurant, I knew that, but I thought it would be attainable in New York City. Now I know, no, it's not attainable. Um, not without a lot of investment and, you know, risk. So at the time I didn't think I would come back, but I, uh, cooked there for about five years and I knew that something had to give. So walk me through this. Did you take on a significant amount of academic debt? I mean, this is a very germane conversation to the times because people are considering, uh, you know, debt versus real life experience, the risk reward, the trade-off of revenue for that degree. How did that calculate in your head? I did. Um, well, trade school is not covered by, uh, isn't federally funded like loans. So, which I think is insane. I think trade school and, um, is a wonderful thing for people. And I wish more people felt that it was a good alternative to college. Um, learning a trade is the best thing I ever did for myself and no one can take it away from you. So it's, it's a great thing. Um, I mean, I also have an English literature degree. I don't do anything with that. So I, uh, I did take on a considerable amount of debt. It's not like if you went to a four-year private school, but it's a nine-month program that costs you know $60,000. So it's very expensive. Um, and so not everyone has the opportunity to do that. You know, There's no scholarships for culinary school. Um, you can't go like on an olive garden full ride. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Actually, take that back because I pretty, the James Beard Foundation does have uh, for for women uh, to go to culinary school. I think they have some scholarship opportunities, but um, I took an extra ten grand, so I didn't have to work while I was in school. Um, not like, I mean, we lived on nothing, but I got to eat so much food and travel all over New York City because I didn't have to work. It was really amazing, and I went. You know, I ate everything in Chinatown. I ate everything in like all the different neighborhoods. We would go to Flushing. We would go, you know, all over the place. And it was a big part of learning about what food I wanted to cook. Hmm. I have a curveball question for you, remembering the late um, and, and more Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential. One of the memories in this is how uh, pungent and experienced substance abuse and depression is mm. in the kitchen. Uh, what is it about that industry? I mean, I, I, I remember just the guy that the master... Uh, uh, pastry chef, the bread guy who had a heroin problem, for example, and they couldn't, they couldn't bake the bread without him because he was the only one who knew it. He would come in and punch the dough, but he was a really problematic person, as Bourdain was himself. He told you he wasn't always dependable. What is it about that industry? Is it is it the hours? Is it the lack of you know cash flow gratification, the competition? I think it's a combination of those things. I think the industry is changing a lot. I also think that men have something to do with this. Um, as a woman and in my kitchens with lots of women in them, they are just a different environment than those initial kitchens that I worked in when it was all dudes, very competitive, no support systems, um, drink till you can't, you know, like 
if you couldn't drink, then you're not a cook. Like that was a big thing for me coming up. And I think still for a lot of cooks in many kitchens, but it's changing a lot. Um, I, my kitchens aren't like that. And I, I don't, I think most kitchens have changed from that. Substance abuse though is still a very big problem. And I would say in, as cooks and in front of house, we're surrounded by alcohol and it's all about a good time and making people happy and always being in a party, you know, kind of spirit. So that can be hard for people to turn off. And I think when, um, when you're not in the restaurant and you're not in that environment, it's hard to see how your normal life plays out. You're not always in a party, you know? And so some people try to make it always a party. I feel very lucky I, I haven't struggled with that, but I have seen, I've had cooks who um, just couldn't be around it and, and can't cook anymore. They can't be in a restaurant environment because there's alcohol. And I do think in Richmond, we've had a couple of chapters of Ben's Friends open. Um, Jason Alley and Joe Sprada are sober now. And um, run a uh, group therapy sessions. I mean, I, I haven't been, so maybe it's not therapy, but it's like talking and uh, meetings for people who are sober in the restaurant industry, which is really amazing. Now, I'm going to toot your own horn because I don't think you'll do it, but you were first in your class at culinary school. <laughs> I, did you go on with the intention of doing that or did it come oh, easy to I, you yeah, in a way I'm that I'm a you... brown noser. I'm like, up, I want to win. So <laughs> I was like, hello, chef, how are so you? So how many people were in your class? <laughs> Um, I think like 20 or 30, something like that. Does it work like the way it does? Like if you go to Harvard law or Yale law, and if you graduate the top of your class at all the top firms and the Supreme court clerkships come out, <laughs> do they start whining and dining you like cell night? That's no. what I want to know. Is there a no. culinary institute cell night? Like, well, you know, a, a cook doesn't make you as much money as like a great lawyer or, you know, business person. Would, but that but. is in, in theory. And I would think in practice, that is an opportune time to take a risk, a chance on a person, right? If you net kind of net present valued where you were a decade after that, and you know, we'll talk about it where, where the developer is trying to woo you to this space here. Isn't that the kind of place where you would go and sign a person up? Well, I was hired out of my final, um, by arguably one of the best restaurants in the country, uh, Blue Hill at Stone Barns. So your final in my culinary school is... Were you, you like, retainer? <laughs> no? <laughs> no, I think they paid me like $9 an hour oh. for like... <laughs> 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 and that's another thing too, you know, cooks don't... There's not, there's not a lot of money in the restaurant industry. It's very glamorous. But, you know, if you're a cook, you're making hourly, you're making $15 or less. And What's stopping you from declaring yourself chef, though? Cook, chef. I know a lot of people... Oh, you, yeah, people do this. Nobody's a chef except me in my kitchen. No one else is a chef, only me or only the chef. Lower cooks can call a sous chef chef. So there's like hierarchy. It's like, it's important. Um, I guess it's not that important, but it's kind of, you know, it's important to like keep the structure and the uh, respect levels there. So you were on this vision quest leaving to New York for what, five years? Five years I was there, yeah. When did you decide to come back to the RVA? Where was it? Where was that moment, that spark? Like, I'm going to give this place a try. Look, it's a completely different town. If any of you veer into Superstars Pizza on the West End, there's a poster from Richmond Magazine that has the Richmond food scene from 1995. And it's like Starbucks, Chesapeake Bagels, Outback Steakhouse, Shackleford's. There was nothing here. Right? So in 2007, there wasn't much here either. No, I moved. Well, no, I moved back in 2012. Okay. Um... I just knew... So we were really going... We were, we were having escape velocity by 2012. There were a lot of chefs getting names. We were coming out of the Great Recession. Uh, Lee Gregory's Restaurant the Roosevelt is the reason I moved back here. Tell us um, about that. I, when I was living in New York, when, I, when the Roosevelt opened, we would come back. My family's from here. My husband's family's from here. So we would come back for holidays and you know, we'd visit. And when the Roosevelt opened, we went and ate there. And I was like, this could be in my neighborhood in New York. Like, and this is great. And I'd never had Southern food that was modern like that. And, and I, I still to this day think Lee did an amazing job there. And it was such a special place. Um, and I was like, if they can do this, then maybe I can do something here. I was uh, the chef at a restaurant called Northern Spy at the time. And we had, we had brought in a, a new chef came in. And I just kind of had started to think that I knew I wanted to, like, be outdoors more and I, I was sick of taking the subway to work every day and I just wanted to be back home it, it every time I came back it got prettier to me does that make sense like every when I left I was like 
Richmond. Ugh. But when I would come back to visit over the five years, it's just, it was like, this place is so magical and beautiful. The river, the, you know, the grass, just little things like that. I was like, there's grass here. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to come back really badly. Uh, my husband, on the other hand, didn't. So it, that was probably the biggest struggle uh, was him wanting to come back. So where did you take that first job back? Lee Gregory's The Rosedale. You just showed up and said, hire me? <laughs> well, um, My impression is that it's always a revolving door that I always, they're always looking to hire people. There's always a shortage. A sous chef is always missing. Uh, supplemental talent in the kitchen, a bartender, dishwashers, or maybe that's me time stamping this at 2019. No, there's definitely a, a constant um, what's uh, employment staffing problem for, for restaurants. And it's why, not at my restaurants though. Um, but like, because I try really hard to retain people and make their jobs great and make them happy and have them stay with us and enjoy themselves and, um, you know, have a good life. I care about that for them. But yeah, in general, staffing is hard in restaurants, especially in a town like Richmond. There's a lot of restaurants and not a lot of educated cook staff. Um, and you have a lot of kids who are just kind of doing it to get through or artists, which makes it kind of amazing because there's lots of different personalities. But yeah, there's always a job, especially if you have a good resume. Um, but yeah, I came back and I worked. Um, you could literally just tell Lee Gregory there that, look, I like your food. It's new. It's novel. Was Kendra there yet? Kendra owned the restaurant, but so Kendra uh -huh. wasn't as involved in the running of the restaurant. Like uh -huh. Lee is the guy. Well, not anymore, but at the time he was. And um, so my husband actually became a bartender for them. And my goal, I was like, I don't want to be a line cook when I come back. I want to just get this new project up and running. But I wanted to work a couple days a week and keep myself on my toes. And I started, and I was there a year with them. Um, and it was really great. It was a super fun environment. Back to being the only girl. But it was, uh, it was fun. A really good group of guys there. Is there a husk of a wisp of a scintilla of you saying, I'm going to go and start my own at this point? Oh, 100%. That's why we moved back. I knew I but wanted at, to. But that's at the Roosevelt. And how did you put the pieces together without being, I don't know, disloyal? Did you put out an exploratory committee and meet with people with prospective investors? I want you to really <laughs> walk us through this. I wish I was smart enough to have done that. I, um, walk I, us through the betrayal. No, just kidding. No. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I... Um, Lee is very proud of you, by the way. He oh, him, so. he's, he, we are still very close. Um, I had uh, also was working part-time at Sausage Craft. Um, which is an artisan sausage company here in Richmond owned by uh, Brad Hemp and Chris Matera. And I was, you know, I have a butchery background, a whole animal butchery background, so I was cutting meat for them. And uh, they started mentioning that they were interested in doing a restaurant. And I was like, hi. I was like, I have a little bit of money in my pocket. Like, let's do something. So they Did you have savings or did they? Oh my gosh, like so little, but I felt like very rich with what I had. But like at the time I was like, I got 20K, let's go. Um, and we did, we opened Metzger for, Metzger for $54,000. So um, it can be done with, with nothing uh, and a dream. You really can do it. And entrepreneurship is the best part of my life. Hold that thought, okay. catch a bubble. Please stay with us. This show podcast to Spotify, NPR One, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are here live with Brittany Anderson, James Beard-nominated chef and owner of Brenner Pass, Chairlift, and Metzger Bar and Butchery. You are on Iron Chef. Last year, Battle of Blue Cheese, you've been on Chopped. Yeah. Give me some other publications you've been in. Oh, gosh. Slacker. Uh, television? GQ magazine. Oh, GQ, I'm Garden sure and Gun, Gun. Uh, Bon Appetit, um, a lot of. Fun. Walk me through this scouting for the location for Metzger Bar and Butchery, the capital, the number you had in your head, raising the money to do it, what the economic hurdles are. We always like to get into this kind of, um, you know, voyeuristic aspect of the restaurant business. A lot of people don't talk money. Yeah. But. There are real costs. And I think one of, the, one of the fantasies of people walking into the Roosevelt is there was nothing uh, up there in that, on that swath. A lot of people just said Churchill is derelict, forget about it. But they turned something that was beautiful with the Brimo Seltzer. And now suddenly everybody wants to be there. And James Beard is looking at the bakery around the corner. And so where did you scout out for this? How did you raise money? Unpack all of it for me. So I worked with 
uh, well, it turns out Chris Matera ended up not being involved, and Brad Hemp and I decided we were going to open a restaurant together. Um, and there was this derelict piece of property on the corner of Cedar and 23rd Street. It was a wreck. It had a hole in the ceiling, uh, the roof. So from the first floor up to two floors, you could see the sky. Um, the floors were just like gravel. Somebody probably died in there. Like it was a bad, and it'd been on the market, I think, for like two years. Like nobody wanted it. So we were like, we'll take it. Uh, <laughs> But it was a really good deal. The landlord wanted to build a suit. They wanted to a tenant first so they could make it nice. We pulled together all family savings. I, I have no outside investment in any of my restaurants. It's so, all. wait, hold up. How do you go up and make this value promise? Uh, uh, you know, my father-in-law is here. He would like to do me a favor. How can I invest in your show and everything? But what when you get to real cold-eyed investors, do they want, for example, a dividend, a certain guaranteed rate of return, or I have equity? Well, Nobody I have no like investors. This. No. So they're all just friends and family doing you a favor? One friend and like my, my mom, <laughs> you know, like, you know, we took personal loans from our parents, um, paid them back at a 5% rate. Um, Was there any credit card debt? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's some credit card debt now, but at the time there wasn't, you know, when to open, we, you know, we just opened with not a lot of stuff. We, we kept it really pared down. We did all the work ourselves. Did you still have your academic debt then? Oh, I still have it now. <laughs> so you're carrying that. You're carrying things on credit card. I want to know when you're looking at it, when you actually, okay, it's the exciting stuff with the blueprint and we get to be, you know, renegades of funk in this new neighborhood and everything. But what about the appliances? What about the Santoku knives? All that stuff adds up. Did you have sticker shock initially or did you deliberately give yourself enough of a margin of safety by buying this, this cratered out address? Sort of. We bought everything used. I mean, I thought we were opening a beer joint with sausages. And it just, I really didn't think that I would be the chef that I am now. I didn't think that I would feel compelled to cook the food that I, I cook. It just kind of happened for me naturally. But at the time, I just thought it was going to be a casual place with beers and sausages. And so we didn't spend a ton of money. We There's a, a couple of really good incentive programs here in Richmond. Um, economic, We're in an economic development zone where Metzger is. So we got some rebates back on our equipment purchases from the city. Um, oh, we got another partner, Nathan Conway, who was 24. And I was, I was 30, I was 31. And Nathan was 24. And Brad, there's Brad right there. Um, <laughs> Brad uh, and I are the same age. So we just all had a little bit of family help. And we put, like I said, $54,000. And we put it together and we opened the restaurant. Very little operating capital. Um, Did you go over budget? No. Uh, well, we couldn't. There was just nothing to spend. Like, we didn't have any more money. So we did open with nothing, though. Like, in the kitchen. The kitchen now, if you walked in there, has, like, it's all new. It's all new stuff. Because, we, you know, you buy a $400 stove, you get what you pay for. Um, but... I bought that at a, I bought actually the stove at an auction and it was covered. It was just black and covered. There was like old chicken wings like glued to it. Enjoy Metzger like, Barn Butchery, people. <laughs> it's not there anymore, but I had to like scrape it. I spent a whole like 24 hours cleaning that stove and I was so proud of myself. It came out so shiny at the end. But that's, the, you know, we just did all that work ourselves. And um, is there something to be said by kind of, uh, you know, on-ramping by having pop-ups, by being very careful. Don't commit all the capital. Take over venues. Make it all variable cost. Come in to like a place like this and showcase your, your uh, schnitzel game until there's enough of a head of steam for you to go out and say, listen, I'm going to. Sure. I also think you can do that with media. Um, I, you don't have to get out there and cook those dinners all the time. Um, I say now, if I could go back to school, I would do it for PR or something like that because I do it all for my, I do all my own PR for my restaurants. But uh, we did a pop-up at the Roosevelt. Lee let us come and do a pop-up there uh, two, two months before we opened. Um, and it helped. You know, it got people, especially at the time, people didn't know who I was here. I just moved back. So it got food media in the door and guests in the door. And it was a really great experience. And I think it, it contributed to our initial opening. 
At some point three or four years ago, I start hearing these murmurs back in Manhattan and D.C. about this elusive schnitzel queen. She looks like the Swiss Miss, you know, everything. What, what was your tipping point where you realize it's not just this? Like, I'm actually, I'm, I'm big time. They're coming to this town and they're saying I'm a big deal. Oh, I don't. I, I want to know, you know, what was that hockey stick moment that you realized the place was, it was, it was one hard to put butts in seats? Right? Oh, it's no, it's always hard to put butts in seats. I'm out there every day working to get butts in seats. You know, I think, I think it seems like when you walk into a restaurant, it seems full and happy, but um, you could always do more. That's like kind of my motto. I, I'm always trying to push, always do better. And I still certainly don't think I'm big time. Um, I wish I had a little more confidence about that. You know, I wish I felt like I was big time walking in a room. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I think we all, we hope for more and more all the time and hope that people recognize what we do. Uh, but I think the minute you think you're big time, what else is there left to do? Who nationally came knocking first? Was it Chopped? Was it Iron Chef America? Was it James Beard? Well, I did Chopped when I was still in New York as a sous chef. I did Chopped when I was uh, like 27. Um, and that was a great opportunity for me at the time. But then I got married and I changed my name. And I don't know if this matters to you ladies, but my whole career before I got married is pretty much not Googleable because it's my old, my maiden name. So I won the New York City Chili Cook-Off in 2011. I was doing like lots of events there and all of that's kind of gone. But I think like doing that start got my name out there and that was helpful. Um, Iron Chef was recent. We just did that uh, last year. We'll get to that, but I want to know how long, and this is getting into intimate stuff, how long you were kind of break even or posting a loss on Metzger oh. versus when did it become profitable? When did it pass that tipping point? I think Metzger got pro was profitable within, and you guys, I'm so bad with the money stuff. Like, that's why I have a Brad. Um, but we were posting profit with at the end of the first year because we, you know, we didn't spend a lot of money. There wasn't a lot of overhead. Our rent was very, very affordable. Still is. It just went up this year, the first time. Um, but year two, we were making money. So yeah, you, you spend fifty-four thousand. You don't have a lot to cover. What so. were your hours like daily? My hours then? Oh my gosh, too much. I was working probably six days a week. Uh, 12 to 14 hour days. I was still working the line. I was like cooking every night on saute with another cook. And then I'd say year two, I started to be like, this is unsustainable. And I started to, I hired another person. And so we could, we grew a little bit. At the, that point I was probably still working five to six, but I would get two days off. And then, um, now this year i realized like i have to i have to be more careful with my personal time so now it's 5 days it's 50 hours it only week. took me 15 tries to get you to return my email oh, i'm just kidding I'm <laughs> i want you to take us to iron chef cuz everybody can certainly remember this and i can remember the i can imagine the the if you're at a wedding or bat mitzvah or anything the questions people ask you what's that like do you know going in when, what what was it like take me back to when you first got the call and then take me to kitchen stadium and tell me that, was there a little grid that you put the possibilities of ingredients they would ask you just go back and do it it's all pretty accurate um, I was asked to do it and I was hesitant. Um, uh, they call and leave notes and I, uh, I really didn't want to do it. I would ignore them, throw the notes away. Um, because Chopped was really hard. It was a really hard experience. It's a 20 hour filming day and I, you know, I, I get panic attacks when I see Chopped come on TV now. Um, but I, so I was ignoring them, and then my partner at Brenner, James's wife, saw the note and was like, what's wrong with you? Do you not like money? <laughs> and I was like, no, I, I like money. Uh, and she was like, then call them back. And I was like, I don't want to. And so she pretended to be my assistant. <laughs> she called them, got all the information, and then came to me, and she's like, okay, you're doing this. Here's all the information. You have a Skype interview next week. And I was like, hey. <laughs> So, but I did it. I did the Skype interview and then they wanted me to go on. And um, it's really, the reason I did it was because you get to bring sous chefs. And so my longest employee and one of my best friends, Mike Ashley, he's uh, my chef de cuisine downstairs. 
he, uh, I really wanted him to come on with me. And uh, Lily Clem, one of my other sous chefs, she uh, came as well, and we got to go to LA for a couple days and film. I'm not sure how much I can share about the process. Did you know you would be taking on Alexander Guarnaschelli, no. for example? You have no idea who you Did they be give with. you any other parameters or assurances? I know your assistant saying, look, it's it's you're you're gonna get such valuable marketing. In, in the off chance that you win, can you imagine you can go around saying Iron Chef? Yeah, and nobody wins. We we went prepared like if we didn't expect to win. We were like, we feel we felt good about the what we were gonna cook because they do give you some guidelines about what you might have it's there's options and so we basically make grids and we're like you know trying to figure out what we might cook um and where was blue cheese in that grid how likely was it oh my gosh that was the one i didn't want i really was hoping not to get that but um we we just felt like we had a good shot and our goal was to be pleasant to have fun to look like a place that you would want to work. For me, I saw it as an opportunity to attract cooks. Really? Yeah. I want, you know, I wanted to I want people to want to work with us, to see us and be like that's a place I want to be. That's where I want to eat. That's where I want to work. So that's what we wanted to do. So Mike and Lily and I we had fun. We cooked good food. Um, How nervous were you in doing it? I was I surprisingly was not that nervous. Um, because of them, because I had them with me. I feel like if I'd been alone, I would have been pretty nervous. But when you have a team like that, we've worked together for so long, I knew that nothing terrible was going to happen, that we could probably fix it. And did you have, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you this, did you have the contingency of if they do give us a fromage or blue cheese, this is what we're going to do. We're going to come at them with this. If they give us a bunch of ducks or a bunch of rabbits. This is what we're going to do if they give us... Well, you have some plans in place, right? Like, So you are like, okay, if I get something like this, here's what I would do. If I get... I ended up... I, I think I did have a grid. I had a big spreadsheet with like every... I went through on Wikipedia. You can see every ingredient that's ever been given on Iron Chef. And um, so I went through and I wrote them all down and I wrote menus. I, or like just things we would do if I got eggs, if I got, you know, pineapple. <laughs> So how authentic is that huddle with you and your sous chef and your assistant? Not authentic. <laughs> and how about um, the timing of, I cuisine, you know, when he comes out and says, blue cheese. I how mean, much time do you have? You d that, that's real. Like, it, you get there, they say go, and you're going. That's oh. totally real. I mean, the huddle, we are talking, but we, at that point, we've kind, we, are, we know what we're doing. So I didn't just magically look at them and be like, Blue cheese tart. You know, we, we kind of know what we're doing. But um, the, once they say Ale Cuisine, you, you go. And, and Alex Barnashelli is, uh, she's tough. She's feisty. She came up and started grabbing cheese. I was like, come on, no. Um, but it was fun. It was a good time. So wh where was your head when you got the results? What did she say? What did everybody else say? What was the reaction coming out of it? Uh, actually, after seeing on both menus, I thought we had a good shot. I felt good. I thought the plates were... Um, Beautiful, which is, you can't taste the food when well, you're watching Simon, television, but Simon you see Ma it. Simon Majumdar, was he tough on you? I don't remember. <laughs> You've repressed the memory sufficiently. <laughs> I feel like he, they were all fairly nice and um, pretty generous and interested and um, aware of, like, you know, the kind of food that I cook. So they, they were, you know, knowledgeable. About Talk to what me we're about doing. the publicity around it. Clearly, everybody's writing. They're saying, you know, Richmond Chef is going to be on Iron Chef this weekend. Did it, did it come with this long tail of, of other opportunities and traffic and people traveling from other places to see you? It's funny. I do have guests who are interested in it and want to, you know, want to talk about it. I definitely end up, no one ever asked for photos before until now. So now that's a thing. I think the TV thing is important to people and they see it and they want to talk about it. And I'm glad uh, it's, it's a good, it was a great opportunity. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Brittany Anderson of Brenner Pass, Chairlift, and Metzger Barn Butchery. She is a James Beard semifinalist. She's been on Iron Chef, on Chopped. She's been featured in GQ, Garden and Gun. Uh, I do have to ask you, Brenner Pass, this was a hotly anticipated location. We are taping this show atop Brenner Pass in the Dominion Payroll headquarters. Now, you had a lot of, of envious people out there saying that, a developer was actually making an overture to you. Said, come here, Chef Brittany. Was it Spyrock? I will build 
a facility to suit you. Uh-huh. I will give you a haircut on rent. Not a lot of people get that. And compare and contrast that to your you know, crater in the ground with your first restaurant. <laughs> building Burner Pass was 100% different than building Metzger. Um, I'm very lucky. Spyrock, who uh, is the owner and developer of, of the Symbol development, um, are wonderful to work with. And they were very interested in making a restaurant that would draw people to their development and would stick around for a long time. Um, so we were very lucky to work with them. And we had, um, you know, when we talk about how Metzger was like a $54,000 thing downstairs, we're talking, you know, a, a million dollar project. So a hundred percent difference, um, in what we're doing and the amount of people working on it and the amount of help we needed. But I'm glad I've done both. I think the next one's going to be somewhere in between. The next one. One day. So, one so day. I want to know. I mean, you, you said you were working, you know, six days a week, 12 to 15 hours. A day. Did you have this second one on your mind by then? Or did this overture from Spyrock with, I don't know if it was a sweetheart deal, but it was certainly flattering. Like, we want you. You're the one. We're putting you in this space. Um, did that then force your hand? Well, I'm not sure if they approached other people or not. But I know that as soon as we met, we felt a really good, like, uh, spirit and connection with them. And so it was pretty much right away. We were like, felt very good about it. I'd say a year and a half into Metzger is when we started to want to plan for the next one. Um, I knew there was more we were capable of. I knew I wanted to do something big and I'm glad I did. I think that it's really great to have a restaurant that's big, like Brenner and bustling and kind of a national attention place. So, um, that's what we wanted, and we, we went for it. You're talking about a million-dollar-plus nut. At this point, I presume you have investors coming to you and saying, I'd like a, a stake in it. No I'd investors. I'd like a piece in it. Really? No investors. Or did you want to keep them out? I don't know what, exactly why we did that. We just um, we ended up kind of running with, again, with personal investment, with our own capital. I think we we're already were five owners at Brenner, though. So three at Metzger, five at Brenner. Um, we brought in my pastry chef who'd been with me at Metzger, Olivia Wilson. She's incredibly talented. She is a, an owner with us at Brenner. And then James Kohler, who is our beverage director, who was a bartender at Saison before that. And uh, he is an owner as well at Brenner. So we're all working partners. Nathan Conway and Brad Hemp, also from Metzger, are owners as well. Now, you've always been outspoken about saying that Metzger is your baby. You are, first and foremost, the schnitzel queen, <laughs> right? And you can't replicate yourself. You can't add hours to the week. You were known to be, in a good way, a controlling person who wants to have her thumbprint on everything that goes to the kitchen. How do you delegate at that point? And I also want to know how you go out and recruit, because at this point, it's not just hired hands and dishwashers. It's, it's owners. It's mm-hmm. people who are there and, and kind of continuing your spirit and your execution and doing it. It's the hardest thing that's ever happened to me is opening another restaurant and having to not just be the only person on something. But, uh, you know, Olivia had been working with us for a while, so I knew that she would be a wonderful fit and would be able to handle things at Brenner. And then Mike Ashley, who is my chef de cuisine, he was my sous chef at Metzger. He's worked for me for five, five and a half years now. Um, and he is, I knew he would take care of things and handle it. And it's a learning curve. It's a, I think that last year was a massive development year for me of learning to be a better manager, learning to be hands off, learning to try to inspire people without having to actually do their work for Mm. them. So it's been a big learning curve for me and, but it's been great. I feel pretty tough, you know, I feel pretty strong from it. So. Brittany Anderson, in the eight minutes or so we have left, I'd like to open it up to free skate. Um, I'd like to know if I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or an event and, you know, we're both get a couple of beers into each other and I say, what is the one thing I need to know about your industry? What is the one thing that when you're about to close your eyes at night and saying, if only people on the outside knew, this is your chance. If only the people on the outside knew that every person working in that restaurant really, really cares about you and your experience. They really do, and they're trying to get it right. And if you're having a bad experience, they are trying to fix it. And everybody wants to find that point to fix it and make you happy. I just would suggest that for, I wish everyone knew that, the, that those people are real and have feelings. 
There's no big corporate bank that owns these places. It's me. And those reviews you write, I read them. And I want to make it, you know, we all, we are trying our best and we're people and we're humans and that's all. I just want people to feel that real personal connection about who's making your food, who's serving your food and how much they want to do a great job for you. Why wouldn't it make you more cynical? I mean, after working at Hooters, just to bring it back to 2002 again and seeing people complain and throw in, you know, somebody's cream puff is not perfect. So they write a flaming review on Yelp. At that point, I mean, a, a lot of other people would be frustrated. You still have hotel experience, you know, hotel experience, hospitality experience. You still want to come back. You still want to show up every morning and really, truly make it great. Oh yeah, I mean, what, like I said, if we're if we think we're doing great, then why get out of bed? I I go I I'm very tough on myself because I know that's the only way to get better. Um, and I would like to be great. I don't want. I would like to do this forever. I mean, I'm 36 years old. I'd like to be doing this when I'm, you know, 75. Um, and the only way we do that is if we're constantly getting better. And those reviews help me, you know, to get better. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not cynical about it. I think that everyone's having a, an experience and, a, and a, everyone's life is, is happening. And I just, I want to be a part of it. Are you mentoring? I mean, to go back to your experience when there weren't other people for you to take notes or share notes with back in 01 and 02. Now I imagine we have uh, one, you know, champion, junior champion here tonight who looked up to you and oh, asked yes. to come in attendance. Our chop junior champion over here. <laughs> but do you have time for that among the other things that you're doing? Um, I do think that this RVA dying community shares notes and helps on the margins. We do. And I, I 100% try to do that. Um, again, like... Uh, a lot of my staff is female. I think that comes from, you know, women want to work with other women and it's, it's a really nice kind of inspiring, safe place. Um, I try to be available to cooks and um, answer questions when I can. And it's funny seeing the, the coin turn, right? And I used to be the person who wanted the questions answered and now I'm the one, you know, answering them. Um, Michelle Williams has been a fountain of knowledge for me here in Richmond, uh, always someone I can call and ask questions, especially about the business side of things. She's so very she doesn't smart. look at you as a competitor? I don't think so. We don't really overlap that much, and I think in what we do and where, you know, our, our models. And even if we did look at each other as competitors, I think we... So if you need a tub of duck fat, she'll hook you up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, the chef at Nota Bene now is my old sous chef. Um, it's an entangled web here in Richmond, but it's a wonderful one. And it creates, you know, bonds and friendships that I think last. Chef Brittany, I cannot thank you enough. Chef Brittany Anderson of Brenner Pass and Metzger Barn Butchery. You were listening to our February 2019th live taping with Chef Brittany Anderson, who is competing on this season of Top Chef. This episode was produced by John Valentine and Kim Zaninovich and edited by Claire Morgan at Notterly. Full Disclosure Podcast to Spotify, NPR One, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Join us next week. Music.